Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new book that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Thomas David Dubois about his wonderful new book, Religion and the Making of Modern East Asia, which came out with Cambridge University Press in 2011. Do historians of East Asia sufficiently account for the role of religious communities in the construction of history? Of course, there are histories of the Taiping Rebellion and groups like Soka Gakkai and the Falun Gong. But have historians probed how these movements shape the history of China and Japan more generally? Thomas Dubois argues that religion forcefully shaped the social, political, military, and economic dimensions of modern East Asia. And in this, this great new book, he explores the variety of religious actors and groups who were influential from the 14th century until today. The book outlines both continuing characteristics, such as Chinese millenarian movements and heresies, Japanese temples and funerals, Zen Buddhism and the samurai, and also key events, uh, such as Matteo Ricci's efforts in China, the Boxer Uprising, people like D.T. Suzuki and the Dalai Lama. Dubois also explores how East Asian religions are transforming in a globalizing world and the effects they will have on the future of East Asia. During our conversation, we discuss Zhu Yuanzhong, the success and failures of Christian missionaries, Buddhism and Shinto in the Tokugawa and Meiji periods, the diversity of Japanese Buddhisms, the Chinese Communist Party's position on religion, and new religious movements. I also want to point out that this book does a wonderful job of challenging notions about what East Asian religions are all about. Um, as opposed to taking kind of a scriptural theological approach that highlights what traditions teach or what participants believe in, he focuses on how these religions work and what people actually do in relation to them. That being said, I think it would be a wonderful book for an introductory course on East Asian religions. He covers a lot of ground but makes it very accessible to a, to a new audience, and I think students would appreciate seeing how how these religions shape society rather than just some of the theologies behind them. Anyway, without further ado, here's our conversation. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Thomas David Dubois about his new book, Religion and the Making of Modern East Asia. Uh, how you doing, Thomas? Doing very well, thank you. Thanks Thanks so much for, for making the time. I know you're, uh, you're conferencing in Hong Kong and I appreciate you, you squeezing in an interview with us, so thank you. Thank you. Um, if you could, uh, before we jump into the book, um, I was hoping you could kind of talk about uh, your interest in religion, your interest in East Asia, uh, kind of how you got interested in these topics, um, just from your own kind of experience. All right, that's easy to do. Um, I'm from uh, the Midwest, I'm from Indiana, and I grew up in a, a relatively small town in, in the Chicago suburbs, and uh, this is going to the topic of why religion this, like a lot of uh, the Midwest, these sort of that era of suburbs, uh, it's very Catholic, the town that I grew up in. And I went to a Catholic school and everybody was Catholic and all socialization went through the Catholic church somehow or another. So I grew up in a, a, a setting where religion was really indivisible from any kind of public life. That's the religion I grew up with. And uh, it, it had nothing to do with... Um, well, it had something to do with, but but a relatively tangential relationship with things like theology. Uh, they were in there, but that wasn't really what drove it. It was religion as a social phenomenon, as a familial phenomenon, as an ethnic phenomenon, but very personal and very living. <clears throat> and um, it was so much a part of my childhood and uh, and my upbringing that there was really, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, an interest that um, was very much there at a personal level. And then when I got into the idea of going to uh, graduate school, of becoming a professional scholar, 
I started to look at the way that uh, that scholars wrote about religion, and I always had a nagging feeling that something was wrong. And I, I would occasionally take a step back and think, well, if somebody talked about, for example, an anthropological study, somebody talked about my small town in Indiana this way, um, what would I say? And, you know, I would say, well, they've got, they've got the surface right. They've got the, the structure right. You know, they've got the names connected to the right individuals and everybody's social function is described in, in precise detail, but they're missing the spirit of it. They're missing what we could call it. They're missing the soul of what religion is. And, um, when I went to graduate school, I went to graduate school after having lived in China for a few years as an English teacher. And while I was an English teacher, I did get to go out into the countryside very often. This is in um, a province called Shandong uh, in North China, which is uh, just just to the south of Beijing at the peninsula. <clears throat> and um, th there, there is a lot of religion in the history of Shandong province. And this is where the Boxer Uprising took place, where it started. Uh, where a lot of religious rebellions have taken place. And uh, when you go out to the countryside, you, you, you notice it right away. Religion is the center of everything, even now, even, you know, during, after a few years of anti-religious activity and propaganda. Uh, religion, and of course, in this case, we have to put religion in quotes because uh, the terms aren't really precise for what we're talking about. But it is the center of everything in a way that looked very familiar to me as a, again, a small town Midwestern Catholic. Um, and when I did go to graduate school, I finally sort of, uh, with a little bit of prompting from my advisor, I went to UCLA and I worked with Philip Huang, who uh, is about as far from religion as you can get. Uh, at that point, he, he and all of his students were making a switch from uh, a big project in rural economy to uh, law. So good, hard, historical subjects. And he, of all people, suggested that really my heart as a scholar was in religion. And, um, you know, just essentially let me loose to go out to the countryside and write about the transformation of religion in 20th century China, which I did. That was my first book. And even then, even with, with this personal push that I had to see religion in a more human way, rather than in, in a scholarly manner. <clears throat> um, I remember my great sort of transformative moment in doing fieldwork. Uh, this, is, this is near where I used to live. This is in uh, the province just to the north. It's called Hebei. And um, I was at a religious festival. And this is what I start that book out with. This is different from the one that we're talking about today. That I was at a rural festival, a village festival, and a woman who had been healed she, uh, these are annual festivals. So you, you go to the festival and you make a wish for whatever, for protection, for, for money, for success in business, for success in examinations. In this case, it was, it was to be healed. I, I think it was uh, lung cancer. I don't remember offhand, but, um, she made a wish to be healed. The doctors had written her off. They told her to, to begin planning her funeral. Uh, that was very literally what they told her to do. And, uh, she made this wish to be healed. And she was healed. And so in repayment of her wish, she crawled on her hands and knees with a saddle on her back. This is a, a sort of a, a, an expression of votive piety. Crawled on her hands and knees to this festival, which is uh, was a few kilometers away. So it took quite some time. And she arrived with her hands and knees all, all covered in blood. And she got to the festival and she broke down in tears. She actually collapsed. It was sort of a James Brown moment. She she just couldn't. She was overcome, <laughs> overcome by the funk. Um, uh, and and the people around her did. So she was crying, and they were crying, and then I started crying. And it was just it was it was it was deeply deeply emotional. And I walked away from that with you know as a good um, fake anthropologist uh, had my little notebook in my hand at all times, and and it struck me. Why am I surprised at this? Why am I surprised that Chinese religion would be heartfelt and emotional? And it's because of this deep enculturation of, uh, of the scholarship to see it in a very sort of structural, 
and in particular to see it in a very functional sense, which is an accusation that's often made against Chinese religion and Asian religion more generally. And um, that's what really pushed me to start seeing religion um, in a way that would be meaningful to the people who are living it. And um, that was the first book. <clears throat> For this second book, I think I tried to take these same ideas and put it in a more historical setting. So that is to say, um, if you want to understand Buddhism, for example, uh, you can you can follow the route of uh, the way it's generally taught. If you take an Asian religions course, for example, or if you get one of these secrets of Asian wisdom, this kind of you know popular book, uh, they'll start with the theological imperatives. They'll they'll start with karma. Confucianism will talk about the five relationships. Taoism will talk about way, for example. Um, and that, that theology is there, and that theology is extremely important. I certainly don't want to write that off. But the, 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 the problem is, is if as historians we seek personal motivation in theology, we, we do run the risk of... Um, essentially a cultural essentialization. You know, Muslims behave this way because they're Muslims. And, um, you know, that's, that's something that you can do it overtly or you can do it because, you know, you can essentially do it through omission. So the scholarship will look at the, the, um, we'll look at the texts, we'll look at the scriptures but we really haven't got the same level of sophistication or even just the same level of interest in religion as a social force outside of Europe as we would inside of Europe. So I begin the book by asking, you know, if you're going to write about Europe, of course you talk about religion. You know, religion, Christianity in the Roman Empire, um, Christianity in overseas mission, purges of the Jews, etc., etc. You, you, you it would be nonsensical to not look at religion as a social, economic, political, historical force. And what this wanted to do was just to take that kind of approach and put it to Asia, which really, in a long story short, is kind of trying to de-exoticize Asian religion. What do you, because uh, you, you, you deal with this in the introduction, so uh, I, I, I want to follow up by, what do you mean by... Uh this kind of exoticization of Asian religion. And, and I mean, I guess in relation to that, how, how do you understand religion? Because you, you go at into great length, you don't define re what religion is, but you, you uh, outline a number of features that you feel are necessary in understanding history. So could you, could you talk about those two aspects? Well, the, the question of, um, of what is religion, um, religion has this problem. Imperialism has this problem. Um, you know, democracy has this problem. Civil society has this problem. It's, it's terms that make sense in a 21st or 20th century setting and then writing them back either to a different time or to a different culture or both. And then, um, you know, fitting a square peg into a round hole. So for religion, uh, the best example of this is, of course, Talal Asad. But even before him, uh, there was... Um, uh, uh, the, the name that I've now forgotten. I want to call him William Cantwell Smith, but it's not. Um, someone Cantwell Smith. <laughs> that, that's right. Um, uh, you know, saying, look, religion is, is, uh, is a category. It's not a thing. It's not a set definition. It's, it's something that is uh, contextual. And um, what I wanted to do with starting with the question of religion, um, defining religion, is that uh, again, this is this is coming from people like Talal Asad, um, saying that religion, when we say religion, especially with a capital R, asking is it religion or not, is it imperialism or not, what have you, we have a very clear definition in mind. And uh, it's not always the same definition, but Talal Asad in his book uh, basically said, you know, by uh, the, the, the most common definition of religion is implicitly modern Western Protestantism. And uh, if that's religion, then that's the yardstick. 
And um, it's really more of a, the point that, that we needed to, to make before we start a book about religion is just to say there is no set definition. You don't have to have scriptures, for example. And this is something that historically you really see it becoming a problem in, say, the, the 19th century with, with missionaries, uh, Christian missionaries. Everybody likes to pick on the missionaries. Uh, you know, I'm, not, I'm not trying to do that. Christian missionaries or Western scholars would encounter, for example, Buddhism. And they would say, well, goodness, you've got, you've got a hundred different types of Buddhism out there. You've got, you know, you've got Tibet, you've got India, you've got um, Japan. Uh, everybody says that they're Buddhism. Uh, interestingly, not many people would say that they're the real Buddhism, which is a, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a question that doesn't really come up in the same way uh, that it would, for example, in Christianity. The practitioners didn't ask it, but the missionaries did, and, and the scholars even more so had to ask, you know, we've got all these Buddhist traditions, which, which is the real one and which ones are the, the heresies. And, um, they would use Christian, um, criteria to judge the authenticity of these religions. And in the, in the Abrahamic, uh, idiom, of course, it's the oldest text who wrote the book. That's why they call these, of course, the religions of the book. So who wrote the book and which living traditions are then closest to the book. And, uh, you know, on the basis of that, they decided, and this is people like Max Müller in, in, in Oxford in the 19th century, they decided that if you really want to understand Buddhism, you cannot escape studying Pali, studying the ancient texts. And, um, you know, they had a, a, a real loathing for um, things like Tibetan Buddhism, which are, of course, very far from these texts and incorporate a lot of other traditions. Um, and there, there are people who agreed with that at the time. There were people who disagreed with that at the time, particularly in Japan. But the, the point is that these definitions of what makes religion authentic, what makes it complete, what makes one religion more advanced, for example, than the other, these barbarian categories, these are things that, that we may have internalized. And of course, we, I'm, I'm imagining the, uh, the imaginary reader, but I'm also speaking for myself categories that we may have internalized that will do us more harm than good. So, um, you know, religion is of course, in the end, it's, it's a Western category. It comes from a Christian primarily tradition, uh, historically. And so instead of asking what is religion, all I wanted to do was alert the reader to the idea that, um, we have to be aware of, uh, the, the, the ideas that we bring into the question. You're, and I, I think you're, you're successful in, in the introduction doing this and, and actually subsequently throughout the book. Um, the other kind of fluid category that, that uh, you address here is this idea of modern. So, you know, part of your title is Making of Modern Stasia. So maybe you could explain to us where your modern starts and why. Oh, that's a good one. Thank you. <laughs> and I can put modern in quotes because, uh, because uh, well, because I hate putting titles in quotes. Um, I, I, I really wanted to say 20th century state, East Asia or 19th and 20th century, but then, then the book title would have gone over the whole page. But I, I think you've got a point in that um, modern, modern is, of course, relative. Uh, scholars, of course, usually put modern in quotes because they, they mean it in this sort of um, imaginary, imaginary category. Uh, and I don't use it in that sense. When I say modern, I really just mean present day. Get how did we get to the to the point that we are now? And um the 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 dividing points that um I see as really, you know, in, in this case, in the case of China, we would call it late imperial, for example. Um the the, the points at which everything really changed and set us on a trajectory to uh to bring us to the present day. In China I begin with the Ming Dynasty the founding of the Ming dynasty in, in uh, the, the middle of the 1300s, uh, 1367, I believe. Um, and the reason I, I choose the Ming dynasty is it's sort of, um, it's the etch-a-sketch moment, you know, to use a political metaphor. Um, the etch-a-sketch moment for uh, East Asia, um, there, there's a massive depopulation um, 
there's there's one dynasty ends, another one begins. Uh, this is the the Mongol dynasty that's being overthrown, and it was a, a very very uh, a bloody affair. Um, North China in particular was massively depopulated and had to be repopulated uh, with immigrants coming in from uh, Western China. Um, not only that, though, the, the the economy transforms, and in particular, the political uh, the new political regime has a lot of new ideas, and these new ideas then are really what set the tone for the next 600 years, or 550 years until 1911. And uh, that, that's a relatively clear date. And I would compare that, for example, to the place of the Black Death in Europe. Um, that it's, it's, uh, it's a big moment, but it's a big moment that is, is one of those moments where you can't go back from there. In uh, Japan, it really is the founding of the Tokugawa uh, shogunate for the same reason, um, that you, you follow a half-century of uh, internal warfare, and you have a, a new regime that is it's – mili- it's another military regime, but it's a military regime with a, a very clearly articulated social agenda. They know exactly what they want to do in terms of um, running the country – and engineering a society. And uh, those assumptions, even after the regime falls, those assumptions are things that the uh, the subsequent history of Japan and of, of the neighboring countries eventually do have to live with. So in, in, this, in this particular instance, uh, we have two really clear moments of transition to work with. Now, in uh, relation to the Ming Dynasty, you, you talk about uh, Zhu Yuanzhuang, and I'm wondering if you could you could introduce us to him and uh, what his relationship to religion was, and how how he used his power as ruler to kind of shape the character of religion under his his reign. Certainly, um, Zhu Yuanzhuang is a, is is Zhu Yuanzhuang and Mao Zedong. Those two are, are are the two great giants in Chinese history. Um, you know, for good and bad, um, Zhu Yuanzhuang. Uh, as you said, the founder of the Ming Dynasty, uh, he's often referred to as Ming Taifu, the, the, the um, founder, founder of the Ming, that's all it means. Um, Zhu Yanzhang was a peasant. Uh, he was from a poor area of China, uh, northern Anhui province. Um, he, uh, you know, he, he's one of these larger-than-life figures. In, in a sense, it's a, it's a bit comparable to Abraham Lincoln, you know, with his, his mother dying of, of, uh, of poisoning and growing up in a log cabin. It's, it's almost that kind of story, of course, with a very different ending. Um, but he grew up poor. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, it's always a hard thing to know how much of yourself you're writing onto these stories. But he was very clearly scarred by what he saw in his upbringing. Um, a, a good deal of his family starved. Uh, he was put into a Buddhist monastery uh, because they were the only ones who could have fed him. This was during a time of famine. This is during the, uh, the end stages of the Mongol dynasty. So there was already a lot of social dislocation and, and uh, unrest. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the human life that, that comes along with it. And um, he basically became this larger-than-life figure. He uh, became leader of a bandit force, which then became an army, which then became the army that would take over China. Now, in, in between, he had encounters with um, certain types of religion that are, uh, in Chinese, they're known as white lotus religions. Um, they're really uh, a, a kind of a popular tradition that uh, very easily militarizes because it has an apocalyptic element. And so this is one of the key questions for uh, Chinese history. He worked with these groups, these militarized groups, during his ascent to power. And uh, once he got into power, he turned against them. And so he became... Um, Really, you know, we, we can't call it fanatical, but he became he became quite hell bent on eradicating this particular type of popular religion, and um, you know, of course, the obvious answer is that because he knew how effective these groups were at militarizing, at mobilizing popular uh, imagination, not just discontent, 
And um, that's one side of it is he had a, a very, very, from personal experience, he had a very strong uh, uh, understanding of um, militarized. We, we could, I call it heresy, actually, in the book. Um, the, the, the scholarly term is, is heterodoxy because as opposed to orthodoxy, because this is a legal category during the Ming. Um, but he, he knew how, how, uh, how destructive these groups could be from a political perspective. On the other hand, and again, this is something that really isn't possible to prove, um, you know, we can't psychoanalyze historical figures, but it is very clear that he took the moral imperative of governance very seriously and very personally and um, institutionalized a lot of these traditions of Chinese moral governance that we just call these Confucianism, but the idea of moral responsibility for everybody in charge. And the the more responsibility you have, the more moral responsibility you have. He took that very seriously and wrote that into um, the, the structure of government in a way that no previous dynasty ever had. And again, that's something that would then continue after his life and after his dynasty into the coming dynasty as well. Um, and in Tokugawa, Japan, the Buddhism specifically also plays a very significant part in kind of how the new government is, uh, is ruling its people. Cause you, cause you talk about kind of the various Buddhisms of, of Japan at this time and how, how they're playing a part. Certainly. Um, it, it, Buddhisms, I, I, that, that's precisely it. Um, there, there were, Buddhism had always been much more closely tied to the, to the Japanese state, um, both the imperial institution and then later uh, the shoguns when they started to come out uh, at, at a later stage in Japanese history. Um, at, at a very early stage, the sort of, um, the, the period's called the Nara period uh, in the 600s, uh, was very closely tied to the introduction of Buddhism from China. And uh, it was a very elite, very political kind of Buddhism, very intellectual kind of Buddhism. Um, as Buddhism, and, and of course, very closely tied to political power and political patronage, as uh, Buddhism started to evolve and become something not this... Uh, overly intellectual import from China, but something that became meaningful to people's lives. It developed into different schools uh, that had, first of all, different practices um, instead of uh, uh, this very intellectual Buddhism that, that we begin with, this very philosophical Buddhism. Uh, we developed schools that are more practical. Uh, so something in which, you know, either a tradition of uh, prayer or a tradition of chanting uh, the, the, the really popular sects, uh, such as um, Pure Land and, and True Pure Land, were very heavily based on um, a, a very simple but emotional and heartfelt and sincere kind of practice, just chanting the Buddha's name. And um, this is, uh, you know, this is a progression that takes uh, many hundreds of years, but um, each different type of Buddhism had a different hold essentially on society. And um, by the time we get to the, the period leading up to the founding of the Tokugawa, these uh, popular sects, and you know, it's, it's when, when we call it popular, that's another word that, that kind of does belong in quotes because they, we don't want to think too strictly about a popular versus elite. Um, but there was uh, certainly an anti-clerical movement, and this is uh, seen in groups like the, the True Pure Land, which um, uh, you know had a, a, a very different economic base. Uh, you know, they, they really they were really really for the common people, and uh, these these groups were quite big, and they were also quite. Um, uh, in, 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 in a sense, they, they, they saw a different mission for themselves. Um, and they, some of them had an antagonistic relationship, both with other forms of Buddhism and the political alliance that these more elite kinds of Buddhism had with uh, various political rulers. So it was everywhere. 
um, different types of Buddhism that appeal to different types of people. And so you have all of these networks that overlap and, um, uh, what happens in the lead up to the Tokugawa, uh, this is of course, as I mentioned, following on, um, 50 years of, of civil war, um, that the, the Buddhists arm themselves and they, uh, they, uh, essentially they, they put up a, uh, a religiously inspired resistance to the single most important, uh, figure, you know, that it's, it's, it's a civil war, but it's not one side against another. It's actually a lot of local Lords that are fighting each other and making alliances and breaking alliances and, uh, you know, turning their backs on each other and, and, you know, uh, all these Machiavellian, um, uh, maneuvers that are going on as, as they're all fighting to, to join the winning Alliance and then fight their way to the top. Um, by the, the late 1500s, the, the man to beat was uh, Oda Nobunaga. And um, he's the one that gradually started eating up all of the other lords, either defeating them or forcing them into alliances, all the other lords around them. Um, but the ones who, the only ones who were really able to fight him to a standstill in this way, it was not one of the local lords, it was militarized Buddhists. And that's because he had been branded an enemy of Buddhism. And so he essentially fought a military, uh, pardon me, a religious insurgency for about 10 years. And it was maybe the hardest military battle he fought. So they were, uh, they were very directly involved in the founding of the Tokugawa. Um, now in the, in the next chapter, you, you talk about Christian missionaries and, uh, you, the the title is called the uh, opportunities lost the failure of Christianity. Uh, I'm wondering if you could kind of tell us what how how were missionaries successful and then how how weren't they because ultimately they were not. Well, the the two the the image again I keep saying the image we have um it's 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 the image that you know you hear from a lot of students and I should say that this book uh, was a, taught for many years as an undergraduate course. So uh, if I say the image we have, you know, I'm sort of imagining uh, questions I would get from undergraduates over and over. Um, but the, the, the common image of missionaries is, is from the 19th century or later. You know, we imagine um, uh, sort of the Bible in one hand and a gun in the other. And that may have been appropriate for the 19th century. It may have been appropriate, for example, for Latin America. Uh, when, um, you know, these Spanish missionaries going into uh, Mexico or Peru, that they did come with uh, military dominance. Uh, the idea that missionaries could come in and push their way around local society fits in those circumstances, but it's precisely the opposite of this period. So we're talking about the middle of the 1500s up to the middle of the 1700s. This is, this is a time when uh, in, you know, the big picture, Europe was very, very weak and Asia was very, very strong. So when these missionaries came to first Goa in India and then later to Southeast Asia, to places like Malacca or to um, eventually to Japan and China, Japan was first, China was second. They came as, uh, you know, they didn't come as conquerors. They came as supplicants and not just a matter of not having military force behind them. Um, because there was never, even in the 19th century, there's no idea that Europe could, could militarily take over Asia. Um, but more in the sense of, of their own cultural confidence. Um, when, for example, uh, you know, the Spanish come to Latin America, they do come as conquerors. And that, that counts for a lot of the priests as well. You know, you have someone, um, uh, you know, like in, in Chiapas, um, uh, the, the Bartolomo de, de las Casas, he goes and he becomes an advocate of the Indians, uh, of the indigenous population. Why? Because the indigenous population is being bullied and mistreated by the Spanish. Uh, so even if they're well-meaning, they come in that context. When the Portuguese get to Goa, they have, they have nothing like that. Uh, they come to a civilization that is bigger and more advanced and certainly wealthier 
than anything they have seen at home. And um, they do their best to sort of claw out a little foothold on the edges of this really glorious civilization. And um, this makes a transformation in the way that they do mission. So uh, when the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus, when they first come to India, and they come to India under the Portuguese patronage, this is the Treaty of Tordesillas, that says basically Asia is, is for Portugal to missionize, and Latin America is for Spain to missionize. So this is all happening under Portuguese patronage. They get to Goa, and they come with the idea of doing maybe what they had done in Africa, maybe what they imagined uh, they, they would be doing um, in Latin America, of um, bringing essentially civilization to the natives. And um, that, of course, is not... Uh, that's not an illusion that they were able to hold on to for long. So when they got to Goa, they not only um, adopted a much more humble attitude with regards to the, the culture that they were in, they also adopted a more syncretic attitude to the beliefs that were in local society. So uh, they knew that they, they had no, no chance of converting Muslims. So, you know, if you have a, a mixed population, they realize that they can only go to certain parts of the population. Um, they realize that if this population will not allow men to talk to women, then they know that they have to convert the men. And if this population, uh, in this population religion, is tied to, for example, political power, um, they realize that they have to court this political power. So in Goa, and this is sort of the laboratory where they find all this out, where they perfect these techniques, they stop trying to, to get people to um, uh, learn Latin catechisms. They translate their catechisms into local language. They stop portraying, for example, uh, Hindu beliefs as idolatry. And they say, well, you are sincere and devout Hindus. From your perspective, this is what our teaching looks like. So they translate it not just into the, the actual language, they translate it into the religious language. And so they, they develop locally significant catechisms that um, will incorporate local deities, local beliefs, um, things that they recognize are very important to people. And they get very good at this in Goa. They go, again, this is people like uh, uh, Francis Xavier, then go to uh, what is now Malaysia, Malacca. This is all, again, areas that are um, uh, also part of the Portuguese commercial empire. Um, they go to, eventually they get to Japan. And again, even more than Goa, Japan was a civilization that just stunned these uh, these Portuguese and Spanish priests. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 some of the moments are comical. You know, they try to, um, describe Buddhism or describe Christianity through the language of Buddhism and nobody has any idea what they're talking about, but they politely listen. Um, the people who are listening to them, they know that these guys, you know, where have you come from? We've come from India. Well, they must be Buddhists. <laughs> so they think, the Spanish think that they're teaching Catholicism. The Japanese think that they're learning about Buddhism with these these uh, these foreign priests who have come all the way from India. Um, you know, there, there was some very uh, tangential communication. But their goal was to do two things. Their goal was to really translate the Catholic teaching into Japanese culture. And part of that was the second goal, which is to recognize it, that Japan was a, a very, very hierarchical society. Their second goal was essentially to convert the elites. So the dream is to convert the emperor. And uh, eventually, you know, they, they realize that this is the period of civil war. They realize that the emperor is not a politically significant person, but the people they have to collate, that, that they have to convert are precisely these military elites who are fighting Buddhism. Uh, people like Oda Nobunaga, although he's, he's uh, already dead by this point. Um, 
And so that's what they really focus on. And remember that these priests themselves are, you know, they're, they're from noble families in Europe. So it's these European elites talking to their Japanese peers. And, and that really is the, the, the heart of the relationship. It's elites, it's intellectual elites talking to these military elites, and they liked and they respected each other for a while anyway. In Japan, it goes bad because the military elites have a particular view of religion, which is coming from the fact that the strongest uh, leader was unable to crush a religious insurgency. So the, the, the chapters have to... You, the chapters have to be read together. You know, the, the, the stories do converge. Um, when they get to China, which is, of course, everybody's goal is China. Japan is, is a training ground for China. When they do get to China, uh, they, um, this is people like Matteo Ricci. It's still the Jesuits. So there's institutional memory, even though it's different people. They're learning from their mistakes. They get to China, and again, the same thing. They, they want to talk to the elites. They uh, respect authority. They meet the local, um, say, scholastic elites, because that's the, the elite status in China. It's not military. It's scholarly, because this is a Confucian society. Um, and they, they do what a scholarly elite would respect most, which is become highly, highly literate. They become remarkably good scholars of the Confucian tradition. And on that basis, and on the basis of the knowledge that they were bringing with them, which is, you know, for example, technical knowledge of how to design ships and cast cannon, um, they become very well accepted by the Chinese, um, the, the, the Chinese scholarly elite and eventually going higher up to the Chinese military elite. And they had this idea that they could actually make China a Christian country. And they were very close to doing so. Um, but the Catholic church would not let them. And that's probably all I should say to keep from ruining the surprise. <laughs> well, um, another tradition you talk about, and I, I'm kind of jumping, jumping around here now just to, you, you cover a lot in the book, so we're not going to be able to get to all of it, unfortunately, but, um, you talk about, uh, with the, the kind of development of the Meiji period, we have, <laughs> kind of new understandings of Shinto and uh, and kind of a new categorization of what what practices uh, can be understood as religious Shinto versus uh, non-religious Shinto. I'm wondering if you could kind of uh, explain this a little bit, how, how Shinto fits into kind of the, the development of, of Japanese history here. That's, um, that's another one of those questions that goes back to the definition of religion. And um, this is the moment when uh, the, the Meiji Restoration is 1868. That's when the Tokugawa Shogun period ends. And it, it, it's essentially, um, it's not so much taken over as it just gives up. Because it realizes that uh, 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 the elites at its core, they realize that um, Japan is in a new era. Uh, and this is with the arrival of the, of the Western powers, um, not just a sprinkling of priests, but, you know, with, with warships. And um, uh, the Meiji Restoration is this very sharp turn away from uh, what you could say is, uh, it's called the closed country. Um, this very inward-looking uh, cultural and uh, economic stance that Tokugawa had had to the idea that everything Western is good. And so they jumped into the, um, to the Western world, to the modern world, we could call it, with both dressing Western, and they started eating beef, because that's a good thing to do. And they, you know, they, they really wanted to join this world um, in any way possible. And, and part of what this was, was accepting new international norms, you know, the kind of thing that would literally be written into treaties, they realized um, that uh, a certain attitude towards religion was uh, inescapable. And it had to literally be written into treaties. Um, new words had to be invented. 
the Western powers said, we, you know, we want to have a uh, freedom of religion, essentially freedom to send our missionaries. And there was no concept of religion, religion as an open category. You know, we have Buddhism, we have Shinto, but what is this religion? Um, this sort of overarching category, they had to invent a new word. So this, this gives you an idea of how, um, you know, how novel the concept is. And once that concept had taken root in Japan, particularly Meiji Japan, which was, again, very consciously trying to reinvent itself as a modern, essentially Western power, that the new attitude towards Shinto starts to make sense. So um, the, 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 the balance in Japan is always between Shinto and Buddhism. And Shinto is, of course, the, the, the native beliefs, if we don't call it a religion. And Buddhism is actually a Chinese import. Um, with the change in politics, there's a move away from Buddhism because it was seen as associated with the previous regime. And there's also a sense that they have to recover their native tradition. And that again, that native tradition is Shinto. So there's a lot of... Um, you know, reinvention of Shinto as a sort of an embodiment of Japanese essence. And um, at the same time, you have people like Christian missionaries that are coming into Japan and they're demonstrating, they're showing these new institutions that they have with their religion, for example, um, church or charities or hospitals or civic organizations or, for example, a certain relationship with the government. And so Buddhism is reinventing itself. Shinto is reinventing itself. Uh, Buddhism does things like it develops Sunday schools. You know, and this is obviously an emulation of, of Christians because what the Christians are doing is very, very effective. So both religions are reinventing themselves. In the case of Shinto, it becomes very tied to a number of sort of myths that are uh, really propelling a lot of the uh, the, the mid-Meiji and late-Meiji, so the, 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 say, the 1880s to the turn of the century, um, the idea of a growing a sense of Japanese, I guess you, if we're going to use the modern idiom, Japanese exceptionalism, that Japan is not China in particular, because China was in, in quite bad shape at that time, and, and trying to sort of capture and in, maybe even sort of bottle this um, Japanese essence to, uh, to continue to engineer that and, and institutionalize it. And that's also something that is tied to, for example, the, um, uh, the, the development of the imperial institution. So this is when we start talking about th things like emperor worship, um, which is not strictly the case, but that is, um, uh, you know, this reverence for the imperial house. Shinto, the uh, imperial institution, uh, these sort of mythologized images of Japan, these all become civic institutions uh, towards the end of the 1800s. And, and it really picks up speed and, and metastasizes as, as Japan militarizes during the 20th century. But what's, um, uh, I guess we could call it ironic, is that these ancient traditions, so-called, are in fact very, very new inventions of the 19th century. And so they wanted to say they're religion, but in a sense, because you've got Christianity, because you've got Buddhism, they don't want to say they're religion. They want to say, actually, no, this is something bigger than religion. Because you can be in a religion and or not. You can be a Christian and then decide you're a Buddhist. But this Shinto, it's, 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 it's deeper than Buddhism. It's deeper than Christianity. It's, it's, it's to be Japanese. So in a sense, they wanted to be religion, but they wanted to be above religion. And that's, that's the stance that went all the way up to the Second World War. Now, um, something else that, uh, you know, you said you, you had taught this content for a long time. From a student's perspective, uh, you might assume that the Chinese Communist Party would uh, universally reject religion. Um, but in the book, you talk about how uh, the CCP treats 
traditional religious groups and newer movements in different ways. Can you, can you talk about that dichotomy? Sure. Um, the, uh, I, I, there is an awful lot of uh, sort of knee-jerk assumption about what the Chinese government wants uh, in terms of, of uh, social policy. Um, and a lot of what the, the current government wants is actually not so different from what the previous government wanted before 1949, even though those two governments bitterly hated each other. There's a lot of continuity. And more broadly, a lot of what the Chinese government wants is, is in a sense, is, is quite reasonable. Um, what they're very most aware of, they are very wary of foreign religions and foreign religious actors operating inside China without essentially supervision. And um, China, because they have a long experience with, uh, say, we'll just call it imperialism, um, with, with Western and then later Japanese uh, aggression in their country, they have a very strict view of national sovereignty. It's absolute. If you're in China's borders, you have very, very limited rights. And again, this is something that comes out of history. And um, with regards to religion, their image of foreign mission, for example, is um, something more tied to this image we have of, of 19th century mission, that these are essentially pseudo-imperialists. And, and of course, this is all colored by intense nationalism. It's colored by um, a, a Soviet view of religion, that religion is essentially just a cover for, for uh, either espionage or, or, you know, internal oppression. But the, um, the, the real, the, the, the move against foreign religion is actually much bigger than the Chinese communist government or party. And uh, goes back to the 1920s and 30s. That, and it began actually with Chinese Christians who said, you know, look, we're, we're Christians and we're Chinese. How do we, how do we fit these two together? And we are, um, you know, happy to be Christians. We're happy to be part of a community, but we have to be equal partners in this. And so there is, even among the Chinese Christians, long before the communists show up, there is a movement to uh, regain authority of the missions that we're no longer converts. We're Christians. We're your equals. And, you know, we, we don't want to be treated as students essentially. And, um, so there's, uh, already a movement in China at that point in the twenties and thirties to create a Chinese Christianity, you know, something that is, is, uh, meaningful to Chinese Christians, but also under the, administrative and financial control of China. If you fast forward to uh, 1949, the founding of uh, the People's Republic of China, uh, these people actually start to uh, be prominent in the government. Um, and there are a few of these thinkers, uh, uh, Chinese Christians, that are very sincere in saying we now, uh, you know, thank, thank you missionaries, thank you for bringing the gospel to us, we, we like the gospel, but we don't like all this other stuff. And um, we're going to go our own way. So the Chinese government, the official stance is that religion is, a, is uh, legal and there is freedom of religion written into the constitution, but it is strictly uh, defined. There are certain red lines. There are certain boundaries that they don't want to cross. One is foreign involvement. And that includes even the Catholic Church, which does not recognize the authority of the Pope. It's, it, to my knowledge, the only Catholic Church that it doesn't. It is a national Catholic Church. The other is um, proselytization. So uh, basically, religion is defined. And you know, now we're talking about these explicit and implicit dis uh uh, definitions of what religion is and what it can and can't do. Religion is defined very, very strictly in China as a personal and apolitical force. So it, uh, 
you know, it, it cannot in its current uh, manifestation morph into any kind of civic organization that is strictly disallowed. Um, so they, they do have religion in China, but you know, you wouldn't really call it religious freedom, but, um, it's, it's, again, it's sort of using a, a sledgehammer to, um, to, to pound in nails, you know, just looking at restriction and saying that China is anti-religion is, uh, is entirely inaccurate. Um, we're, we're getting kind of, we're running out of time, but I want to ask you, uh, how, uh, I, I mean, I know you're a historian, so it's it's hard to ask you to look into the future. But do you see patterns, or do you think there's going to be uh, new challenges or uh, opportunities for religion to to shape East Asian history in the in the years to come? Where, where might you see religion kind of uh, playing a large part in, in formulating the the future? Well, where um, it's certain trends that are happening now sound very, very familiar. Um, Falun Gong, for example, in China. Uh, everybody who studied Falun Gong asked the question, why did the Chinese government uh, go so overboard in uh, its reaction to this group? And uh, clearly, they looked at Falun Gong and they saw the same white lotus groups that Zhu Yanzhang had been uh, uh, so terrified of 700 years ago. 650 years ago. So there is certainly continuity there. Um, the real question I would have for, for East Asia is how they will define uh, the, the sort of forms that religion takes. And I think in particular, there's going to be a plurality of religion that um, the, the traditional institutions um, they're going to thrive and uh, they're going to, of course, increasingly globalize. If you look at somewhere like Korea or Singapore, which is where I spent the past nine years, um, they are very closely tied to the megachurch movement in the U.S. And uh, the, the biggest megachurch in Singapore, by far the biggest institution in Singapore, is tied to the churches in Colorado. Um, the same thing goes for Korea. So the, that aspect, institutional globalization will certainly continue and it will certainly affect governments in the same way that it has historically, maybe uh, comparable, although on a, a vastly different scale. The room for innovation, though, I think is um, going to come out of places like China. I'm, of course, in Hong Kong right now, and uh, we just got back from a trip to the mainland where um, civil society organizations are growing at a phenomenal rate and the government, the Chinese government, is giving them room to do so. So China is transforming itself socially um, and it's doing so in terms of street organizations. And I can see religious groups and certainly religious ideals coming into that but they're going to have to do it in a way that uh, that we might not exactly recognize as religion. And uh, again, you know, it, it's something like looking at 19th century Japan. They had a political and social reality that transformed what religion is and does. And I can see something very similar happening in, in China. Well, Thomas, uh, we appreciate you spending the time with us, uh, especially since you're on this busy trip. Um, but before I let you go, could you, you tell us a little bit about what you're either working on at the moment or things that you might have coming out soon or things you have kind of planned out in the future that you know you're going to be uh, working on? Sure. I've got, um, hopefully coming out soon. I've been working on, uh, my real research is, is actually on the Chinese Northeast on Manchuria. And I've written uh, quite a bit on them, uh, you know, about law, about medicine. But really, the focus of it is, um, well, is religion, is social engineering and religion. And so, uh, hopefully, I will have this coming out soon, or at least going to a press soon. Uh, a big study on religion and social engineering in the Chinese Northeast during the early 20th century, 
And this is um, a story that involves uh, early 20th century China, but uh, very much involves Japan. So a lot of the themes that are brought out in this book are dealt with in a great deal more detail in this particular study. Um, well, that, that sounds great. We look forward to that. Uh, I want to, again, uh, commend you. That I, I think this book, uh, and, and knowing that it came from a, a, a course, um, I think it would be a great alternative book to uh, some of the more kind of traditional uh, Asian religions or East Asian religions kind of textbooks because it really does show the kind of uh, dynamic nature of uh, East Asian religions. And uh, I, I think it's, it's very good. It's very readable. And you, you cover a lot. We obviously didn't get to cover probably even half of the content. But you, you do it in a very uh, edible way for the, the audience. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, thanks again for, for talking with us. And uh, we look forward to, to hearing more from your work. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. That was my conversation with Thomas David Dubois, Senior Research Fellow at Australian National University, about his new book, Religion and the Making of Modern East Asia, with Cambridge University Press, 2011.